colleagues, I want to get started here uh, because uh, Congressman Rick Larson is with us, but uh, there is a uh, joint session of Congress with uh, Gordon Brown. And they're going to be beginning at 11, and so we want to be able to, uh, to have uh, Congressman Larson join us and say a few words before he has to rush off. Thank you all for coming. Uh, thank you all for coming. I'm delighted that you're here. Uh, my name is John Hamry. I'm the president of CSIS. I, my role here is largely ornamental uh, uh, to try to get us through a, an important session. We wanted to release today our study, and, I'm, and I apologize. We had a hiccup with the publisher. The, the, the study is itself available on our website right now. We won't get it published because we had a little hiccup, but we're, we're going to have that uh, available just very shortly. Please let us know if you'd like copies. We'd certainly like to get it to you. Um, I would like to say uh, a couple of words of thanks before I quickly turn it over to, uh, to Hank, who's going to be our, uh, Hank Greenberg, who's going to uh, initiate our discussion here. This was a project that went back to a, a conversation that I had with uh, Hank Greenberg uh, a little over a year ago. Hank had been a member of our uh, Smart Power Commission, and a year ago we were in the middle of a great debate, as we always seem to have on things China, and, and uh, he said, you know, America is going to marginalize itself if it isn't careful when we're starting to deal with this important relationship. And we started thinking about it and said, you know, this needs to be a focus where we're looking at concrete and constructive things that we can do. Um, you know, Washington is a, uh, Washington's a town with 13 goalies and no puck. You know, I mean, everybody in this town, I mean, everybody is defending positions and it's very hard to move things constructively in this town because people are, largely using every issue as a way to defend their, their space or their turf or their agenda. We felt that we needed a project that was going to try to move an agenda rather than just simply block movement to protect turf. And so that's, this, this has a very different spirit that we're trying to, we're trying to illuminate and animate today. Uh, we have a very good turnout of our commissioners. We have a number of commissioners who couldn't be with us. John Chen, who's with Sybase, is in the Middle East today, but fortunately Ed Hurst is with us uh, to stand in for his place. Uh, John Huntsman, the governor of Utah, who has been very active with the commission, and John was, of course, the U.S. trade representative. Uh, there are more, peop more people in Utah are learning Chinese than any other language. It's a very, very active as he's reaching out, and he's done really remarkable things there. Henry Kissinger was very instrumental in helping us with the project, but couldn't be here today. Uh, Amory Lovins, who is the co-founder of the Rocky Mountain Institute, was very much on the forefront of working with us on global engagement on energy and environmental issues. And then Senator Murkowski, and she's not able to be with us, but, uh, but played a very active role throughout. Um, let me very quickly just say this, this did grow out of our smart power effort, where we're saying we, we need to be smarter, not more ideological as we approach questions in America and the world, and especially the relationship with China. Um, this is foremost about the United States, not about China. How do we play a better role and a more constructive role in the world? And you're, but the, China is such an important actor in the landscape now. We could choose to either have a constructive path where we could marginalize ourselves. And so it was with that spirit we were going to try to work out and find some concrete concrete solutions. We're going to, the commissioners are going to spend a little bit of time illuminating some dimensions of this study today. So let me turn to Hank Greenberg. Hank, would you get us started today and discuss the kind of the framing uh, concepts that we brought to this project? Uh, thank you, John. Good morning. Really, the, the, this all began with a discussion that I had with uh, with John, uh, but don't underestimate his his participation and his vision uh, in getting this done. He was very much uh, one of the catalysts behind it. Uh, I've been going to, and I want to thank also all the commissioners. They all put a lot of time uh, in uh, making this happen, and the staff worked diligently in turning around um, differences overnight try and get this report done. And I think it was an effort that uh, uh, really brought out the best, ultimately, 
in what our relationship with China should be. I've been going to China since 1975. Um, um, last year I went about seven times um, on business, of course, and serve on a number of advisory boards in that country. We are the, first, we are the largest economy in the world, even today. And China is number three and coming up very rapidly. Uh, not to have a constructive relationship with China is not in our national interest. It hasn't been for some time. Um, yes, we'll have differences, as we have differences with most countries. But that doesn't mean that these differences should dominate the relationship. I can't think of a more important relationship in the world today and the world tomorrow, the U.S.-China relationship. It will become even more important in the years ahead. Uh, we have common interests in fighting terror, uh, and you can go on and on. Our trade relationships uh, are essential. Uh, China has been one of the has been the largest purchaser of U.S. Um, bonds, government bonds. Uh, we argue, well, is that, is that good? Is that bad? If we didn't, if they weren't buying those bonds, uh, who would have bought them? Um, and so it is an important uh, economic relationship. There's an enormous opportunity for American business in China. Uh, we complement each other in many ways. Uh, we have common interests. For example, we have the largest, we in China have the largest coal reserves in the world. Can we work jointly to find a way to, uh, for coal to be a, a fuel that can be burned cleanly without polluting the atmosphere? Uh, there, are, there are now, as we sit here today, uh, there are some, some projects going forward in attempting to do that by both U.S. and China working together. So there are many, and we can enumerate many areas like that uh, where the relationship is going to become more important. The differences we have, as we have with many countries, should not be, in my view, uh, publicly discussed. They should be privately discussed. Diplomacy should be carried on uh, quietly. Uh, when you begin to announce these differences publicly, you pollute the atmosphere and make it very difficult for negotiators to make any progress. Uh, the ire of both sides go up, um, and, uh, and you lose really the focus of what you're trying to do. Uh, I've always felt that uh, uh, when you negotiate quietly, you make far more progress uh, than you do when you negotiate publicly. It's the wrong way. And I would hope that uh, uh, that going forward, that that's something we can that we can do, not just with China, but where we have differences with anyone, do it quietly, uh, and you'll make more progress. Um, as I said, this effort, uh, uh, in many ways, I thank the staff for the great work they did, and my colleague uh, Bill Cohn uh, has been a great. Assist uh, in this area. Um, uh, his knowledge about China is is very deep, um, and uh, I'm going to turn it over to him right now. Thank you, Hank. Thanks very much. Uh, this would not have come about uh, without your uh, direct involvement and vision to uh, to put this commission together, uh, along with John Hamry. Um, I haven't been going to China quite as long as Hank Greenberg, but I started in 1978. Uh, I was uh, a congressman at the time, had just been elected to the United States Senate, and there were four of us. Howard Baker had asked four of us to go over and meet with the Chinese leadership. Uh, on that uh, delegation was Senator Sam Nunn, Senator uh, Gary Hart, um, uh, myself, and Senator John Glenn. And uh, on the way over, uh, we had to decide who was going to say what. Uh, me being the youngest then uh, and the newest member, they assigned to me the subject of human rights. Uh, and <laughs> so, and uh, it was a brief conversation uh, with uh, Deng Xiaoping in the Great Hall. 
But I must tell you, I have never seen a more dramatic transformation of a country in a 30-year time period than I have witnessed with uh, China. There is nothing to, uh, to compare to it. What they have been able to do in that 30-year period, uh, the, um, the intelligence, uh, the industry, uh, the sheer willpower to transform their country has been nothing short of amazing. Uh, and as Hank Greenberg, Hank Greenberg has indicated, it's critically important uh, that we have a, uh, a good relationship with China, which is not to say it's going to be perfect, as he has pointed out. We're always going to have differences. The differences will be um, argued publicly, uh, even though we think diplomacy needs to be conducted uh, by the executive uh, and in a way that really is just a reflection of human relations 101. Uh, it's real simple. Uh, you uh, show respect uh, to your counterpart. Uh, you uh, deal with them uh, on a face-to-face -face basis. You sit down, identify what areas uh, that you think are critically important where you can uh, cooperate, and then you identify areas that uh, you're going to disagree on. But it's important that you have a good relationship so that when you do get to the tough issues, you're able to negotiate your way through them without turning uh, into a, a true adversarial relationship. So there are many, many uh, areas that we have in common. As Hank was indicated, you can take a look at the need for uh, efficient energy use, uh, water use, uh, trying to develop uh, alternative fuels, um, safe nuclear power development, um, um, cooperation on humanitarian rescue missions, greater military-to-military -military, uh, relations. I mean, there are dozens of areas where we can and should cooperate and understand that there are dozens of areas where we're going to disagree. And key members of Congress are going to take to the floor in the House and the Senate and uh, raise those issues and debate those issues. But as far as we're concerned in this particular report, what we want to do is to set forth a new strategic framework. And in that framework, try to identify here are uh, half a dozen or more areas where we think are critical to our relationship because it's for the global good. These are things that both of us can do working together, sharing technology, sharing techniques, uh, to produce a benefit for our respective peoples and hopefully for people the world over um, because uh, we are all really integrated. This is a very small world. Technology is reducing and miniaturizing that world. And what takes place in Beijing in terms of climate is going to have an impact uh, in, uh, in, in Bangor or Boston uh, or Bangalore, et cetera. So because the world is getting smaller, it becomes even more important that we find ways in which we can establish good working relations, understanding that there are always going to be differences. So uh, you'll read the report. We've identified um, where we think we can move forward and establish these relations, the kind of mechanisms that we can put in place, uh, and hopefully the administration will um, find these uh, quite positive and be very receptive. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you very much, boss. Um, let, me, let me turn to Congressman Rick Larson. We were quite anxious to have Rick on this commission because he's one of the co-chairs for the U.S.-China caucus and has been really on the forefront of working this agenda in the House. Uh, Congressman, let me turn to you. Thanks, John, and uh, I want to thank the fellow, fellow commissioners today as well uh, for an opportunity to be here today and thank CSIS. Just a, a, a quick, uh, brief uh, rundown on a few things. The U.S.-China Working Group, uh, we founded that about three and a half years ago, be four years, I think, in June of this year. And have about 60 members or so. We don't have uh, 60 members of the House, and we don't have a litmus test on joining the U.S.-China Working Group. The only only real litmus test is that members of Congress be open to hearing um, ideas about the U.S.-China China relationship, um, and they can make their own decisions about what that relationship ought to be. But to, but to hear some ideas about that, I've only been traveling since uh, 2005 to China, but in that short time, I've had a had a chance to see obviously the growth in Shanghai. I've had a, a chance to actually celebrate uh, New, Year's, uh, New Year's Eve with other Americans in Beijing, of all places, in a real American New Year's Eve party, um, actually, and it was commenting that some folks at this party that if, if other members of Congress could, could see at least what is allowed in, in Beijing, they might have a different idea or it might be the beginning of a different idea about perceptions that members of Congress have about China. We've had a chance to go to the western end of the Great Wall and Zhou Chuan, um, as well as uh, share um, Lamb's Eye out in Xinjiang province um, last year. So I've had a quite a quite a different set of experiences to try to get outside of the regular 
Beijing, Shanghai, Hong Kong routine and get to some of these other places uh, throughout, the, throughout the country. But in my view, the most important bilateral relationship that we have into this century, not just into this decade, is the U.S.-China relationship. It's not to, not to downplay um, other relationships that we have in Asia, including the U.S.-Japan relationship, which is the key of our security alliance there. But the U.S.-China relationship is one there was a, there's a lot of a lot of definition left, and we need to uh, apply ourselves to that. The report makes an important point that our relationship with China ought to be comprehensive, echoing Secretary Clinton's earlier remarks. It also focuses on specific objectives. And I've said before that our, in terms of our relationship with China, we shouldn't be aiming to hit a home run um, at every pitch. But uh, a single will do just fine. If you hit enough singles, um, then pretty soon you can put some runs across the plate. So taking some step-by-step approaches might be more effective in, in working a, a U.S.-China relationship. The U.S. and China share many of the same concerns are discussed in the report. Um, and perhaps most important is, is the impact of the economic uh, global slowdown, which I think we'll hear a little bit more about uh, from, from Charles. But uh, I do want to uh, make a note about the engagement agenda. In both, uh, while both Congress and the administration are focused on jobs and getting our economy on track, um, a, key a key component of this will be engagement with China. The report, is, uh, the report it discusses this. It calls for an increased diplomatic footprint in China, including a doubling, if not a tripling, of consulates throughout the country. also recognizes that America needs a new generation of U.S. specialists on China. Right now, roughly 200 million Chinese are learning English, while about 50,000 American students are learning Chinese. The Smart Power Report recommends sharp increases in, in funding for programs that will uh, help uh, well, it won't close the gap, maybe narrow it slightly. The report also calls for an expansion of American centers in China and Confucius centers here in the U.S., another important piece of, of uh, deepening our relationship. And one last piece, uh, and Secretary uh, Cohen mentioned this uh, just briefly, is a call for an increase in military-to-military -military exchanges between the U.S. and China. Both nations, <coughs> pardon me, share a deep and urgent interest in international peace and stability and the resumption and maintenance of these mill-to-mill -mill relationships in my view, and view of many others, is uh, very critical. Uh, this is the direction I believe that we need to go, and I look forward to working with Congress uh, to move this agenda forward and, and uh, look forward to the, future, the further rollout of the report. And again, not, not to be rude, but I do want to remind folks that um, uh, John said at the beginning that Prime Minister Gordon Brown speaking on the floor of the House, there's an expectation that members of Congress will be there to hear the Prime Minister. And uh, so um, I'm going to do my part to the leadership and fulfill that expectation. Yeah. The, the, the speaker doesn't take role, but the electorate does. So you need to get back, sir. Thank you for joining us. Uh, we'd like to take a few minutes to get into a little bit more of the substance of the report. Let me turn to Charles Freeman. Thank you very much. Let me turn to uh, Charles Freeman to talk, talk us through the section on finance, trade, and, uh, and global recovery. Charles, would you? Jumping the queue a little bit, I guess, and go to Darren after Darren McGee to talk about uh, energy and climate change, which are obviously a big part of the U.S.-China relationship going forward. Um, you know, there's, a, there's a quality of, of, uh, of self-fulfilling prophecy about uh, the U.S.-China relationship, and particularly in the, in the economic and trade sphere. For years, we've had this relationship which has tended to focus, at least in Washington, on the negatives, on the U.S. Deficit, trade deficit with China, on the global imbalances with respect to uh, Chinese holdings of U.S. debt, and per having perceived those as as, uh, um, as, as negatives, politically, the United States government has sort of organized to try to combat the perception of negatives in ways that haven't always been particularly useful, in my view. Um, there are many mythologies surrounding the U.S. and Chinese uh, economic relationship, uh, the perception that we are competitors in many respects, whereas I think, as Hank Greenberg said, said at the outset, uh, the, com the economies are, are largely complementary. The problem when you tend to focus on, on some of the, the negatives and some of the mythologies and combating those is that you tend to obscure some of the real opportunities for not just cooperation, but opportunities to manage some of the genuine challenges in the U.S. and China relationship. We have tended to focus, I think, in Washington on loss of manufacturing jobs to China for some reason, whereas over the same period that the United States has lost, well, even before the, before the, uh, the downturn, the uh, United States lost something like 3 million manufacturing jobs. China, over that same period of time, lost more than 15 million. So even on a per capita basis, China is losing out more manufacturing jobs than, than the United States is. 
So that there, there's something else going on here. And I think it's important, rather than get caught up in the mythology of a one-for-one, zero-sum game with respect to China on manufacturing or other issues, it's important to drill down and really begin to educate the public and really begin to focus on the underlying issues, not just in the United States and China's uh, economic relationship, but also in, 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 um, in, uh, in the United States with respect to how to make ourselves more competitive generally as opposed to just um, protect ourselves um, from, from trade and, and engagement with China. The United States and China, as I said, are, are complementary. Uh, we have largely been the two global engines or two engines for global growth for much of the last decade, if not beyond that. And uh, now that we're in, um, uh, in, the, in the shoals um, economically, uh, the United States and China are going to be uh, counted on to, to be drivers to help get us out of this. It's absolutely critical in this process that we have a genuine strategic dialogue, if not partnership, with China as we build ourselves out of here. Make sure that we genuinely have a, um, a, a strategic dialogue on uh, financial issues and, the, and um, making sure that both China and, and the United States has similar, if not identical, but certainly similar understandings of the pathway forward with respect to a broader financial architecture because really it's ultimately going to be the United States and China, I think, that begin to define how that architecture works going forward. Um, but beyond that, um, in, our, in our engagement with China over the past, past years, we, uh, again, we've tended to focus on the negatives and tended to focus on the political management of economic problems rather than on the strategic management of economic problems. So we tend to get bogged down in, in trying to appease, um, I use that word advisedly, a public that has perceptions of, of negative perceptions of U.S.-China trade. So we end up in our discussions with China trying to get political victories that, uh, that play into the sense, that play into the mythologies about, about the trade and, and economic relationship rather than actually do something about the the trade and economic relationship. We have our problems with China, uh, not least of which is, is the protection of intellectual property rights. Um, that's a problem not just for the United States, that's a problem for China. Focusing too much on a lot of the other um, uh, non-essential and frankly mythological dimensions of the relationships really obscures our ability to do something which about uh, issues which are really critical to the United States. We have focused, for example, in, 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 in further in Washington on the notion of Chinese investment in the United States as a real negative, as something that we should we should um, we should uh, we should defend against first and foremost, and let it be the exception rather than the rule. That seems to be the approach in Washington. And yet, if you go to any uh, community outside of of the Beltway, there's a huge enthusiasm for for um, for investment of any of any shape, size, and uh, and source. And there's a tremendous enthusiasm for Chinese investment. Uh, yes, of course, we have to be concerned about uh, about sensitivity, but that that's not unique to China. That's 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 a um, uh, security issues are are uh, are across the board. And focusing too much on the threat from China in the con in the context of investment, I think really um, really um, uh, obscures some of the genuine opportunities. Uh, what this report does um, does focus on to some extent, in addition to the broad broad uh, making sure that we have a genuine strategic dialogue with China on finance and economic issues is to try to drill down and get beyond the beltway and bring folks from the communities um, that are really interested in Chinese investment into the United States and excuse me into into Washington DC so that they can genuinely communicate how their concerns their demand for investment they can begin to shape the investment uh, investment agenda with a little bit more uh, more definition and force um, I do want to thank uh, not just uh, uh, my boss, John Hamry, but, but also Hank Greenberg and, and Secretary Cohen for, uh, for all their, their work and leadership on, on this. Uh, the United States and China have to get um, the relationship right. To fall into the traps of, of, of just assuming that we are headed down towards confrontation, I think, um, uh, um, is very dangerous. If we assume we're going to be, we're, we're going to be combative, we will be. So uh, uh, having a focus on, on cooperative uh, um, aspects of the relationship is really important. And I, I'm delighted that uh, as we begin to think about a, um, 
a, a genuine strategic relationship with China going forward in a new strategic framework, I, I'm delighted that, that we're keeping that in the front of our mind. Thank you. Uh, thanks, Charles. Let me uh, turn to Ed Liu to share with you some of the things that we've discussed in this report about opportunities for cooperation in science, technology, and space. Ed, would you? First, I'll, I'll, I'll start with a little story. Uh, middle of 2003, uh, I spent most of 2003 on orbit circling the Earth. I spent six months in space. Immediately following the, the Columbia accident, we uh, reduced the crew size on board the International Space Station because we were not able to fly uh, American space shuttles for a couple of years. And so the, um, I had the privilege of being chosen by the United States to be our representative up there flying on board a Russian spacecraft uh, to the space station. And the Russians picked a guy named uh, Yuri Ivanovich Malenchenko, who's my crewmate. And we spent six months up there. So it was kind of a, it was an interesting situation in the six months, just two people up there, sort of representing humanity off the planet. <laughs> Start over again. By, by October, uh, uh, we got a call from Mission Control one day. And the, the Chinese had launched uh, Yang Liwei, their, their first astronaut into space. Uh, so, so, so one day, there was three people on orbit. Uh, they were in a different orbit than us, and so they weren't, they weren't uh, you know, we didn't see them, but they were up there. Uh, we passed a congratulatory message to them. And, uh, you know, the, the point of the message was that it was nice to see that, that there is another country up there. And uh, I tell this story, and, I, and I've traveled to China a number of times, and, and I, when I tell the story there, I often say, uh, because my background is Chinese, both my parents were born in China. They came to the United States uh, as graduate students, got married here and, and stayed. And uh, I tell the story in China that at that moment, uh, two-thirds of all people in space were Chinese. <laughs> and that, al that always strikes a chord there. Uh, and the reason is because the, the Chinese are very proud of their space program. They're proud of their accomplishments, and they're striving to become a world power. I mean, a large part of what they, uh, how they operate, I think, is, is, you know, as stated in the report, is based upon their striving to be seen as one of the great powers on Earth. And uh, so their space program, because of that, is sort of a point of national pride. And the, the point I'd like to make is that the sort of the ultimate example of smart power is, is the space program. I mean, it, it's always been an instrument of national policy, even back to the 60s, back when we went to the moon. The reason was because we were uh, in competition with the then Soviets. But one of the things that we could do is to consider using this smart power uh, in, in a way that, uh, that may uh, sort of gives both sides what they want in the sense that we, we could, for instance, consider uh, Chinese participation in the International Space Station program. Uh, you, and and I, it's important that I say the word consider here because there's a lot of external factors involved, relations with other countries and so on, so it's not a simple thing. But the fact that you are even discussing this uh, in some sense brings China to recognition of, of one of the great powers that can do such things. So this is one of the things that's mentioned in passing in the report, that things like that, uh, the, the space program, other scientific projects of very high profile, are things that can be of benefit to both, both sides, and uh, therefore could be good possibilities for constructive engagement. Um, I, I would like to say also that the, the other thing that I really like about this report is the emphasis on the positive aspects. Um, the, my own company right now where I now work, Google, struggled long and hard when we decided several years ago to get involved in China. And we eventually opted to do that based upon the idea that uh, pulling back means you have no effect, whereas engaging, getting in there, and trying to push the boundaries is the way to make things happen. And I firmly believe that that's true. Thanks. Thank you very much, Ed. Uh, Ed Hurst, let me turn to you. Uh, John, as I said, John Chen couldn't be with us today, but John was extremely active and involved with it. Uh, you know, of course, we all know that the principals do the talking and the guys sitting in the back are the ones doing all the work. So let me, Ed, why don't you let me turn to you to offer your thoughts here with this report. 
Thank you very much, John. I appreciate it. And uh, Mr. Chen did very much want to be here, and he uh, greatly appreciates the work of the, all the commissioners in the commission. Um, regrettably, he had a pre-existing commitment uh, in the Middle East with some important customers. Um, but as many as you know, uh, John Chen, in addition to being chairman, president, and CEO of Sybase, uh, is one of the top American business people working on China-related issues. And he's done it in a variety of roles, um, including a number where he's seen uh, the activities of Mr. Greenberg and Secretary Cohen, which he respects greatly. Um, and most recently, he was a member of the President's Export Council, where he led the efforts on China-related issues. On his behalf, I'd like to extend thanks to those who made this report possible. Of course, Mr. Greenberg, who um, has helped so many different groups in, in this area try to build positive relations in China as well as Asia in general. Uh, Senator Cohen for co-chairing the commission and his vigorous work on behalf of the United States in Asia. Um, also like to thank, of course, uh, John Hamry and uh, Carola McGifford, who uh, uh, were the leaders of this project and would not have happened without them. Um, and of course, uh, Charles Freeman, who uh, Mr. Chen and I worked with when he was our strong and effective uh, head of China for USTR and uh, did a great job for our country. And I see his successor in the back, Tim Stratford, who's also doing a fantastic job there. Uh, and then, of course, the rest of the CSIS staff who pulled long nights trying to make this report happen. Thank you very much for pulling this great product together. Um, since Mr. Chen, in addition to everything else he does, is, is a leader on innovation policy, I thought that that's the part of the report that I would address today. Um, the, we're fortunate in that the U.S. is the le world leader in uh, innovation and technology development. We can see that in companies like uh, Ed Luz, uh, which does um, you know, search and a variety of other things at my company, Sybase, and a variety of others. Um, one easy way to measure that, it's not the best measure, but it's a quantitative thing, is patent filings uh, in the global context. Um, in 2008, the U.S. led uh, in such filings uh, with 53,000. China was actually six with 6,000, but they're growing quite rapidly in terms of their filings. Aside from patents, the Chinese leadership has made clear uh, that it wants to move up the value chain from light manufacturing to high tech. You see this in their five-year plans. You see this in their statements. This is a critical priority for them. And this provides an opportunity for us in the United States to work closely with the Chinese. It's an area where they want to advance and where we have the leading role. Um, it's, uh, American companies have strong presence in China in the technology field. And the Chinese are also investing here, as we saw with Lenovo's investment in IBM's PC business. This is sort of an example of what what Charles was saying in terms of how our economies are complementary and it gives us an opportunity to work together. Um, the Commission's report calls for a dialogue on finance and economics, which Charles so aptly described, and it specifically recommends innovation as part of that discussion. And I'd like to briefly touch on three points which could be part of that innovation discussion. First, innovation is most likely to occur where there's an effective rule of law. Both American and Chinese companies will benefit if we improve the rule of law in China. Uh, to give you one example, intellectual property rights protection. Uh, this not only benefits U.S. companies, but Chinese companies as well, which innovate. If Chinese companies can't realize the economic benefits of their innovations, then they'll be faced with the choice of either closing because they can't make money based on their research or moving to another location. And while we're happy to have them in Silicon Valley, I don't know if that always serves China's interest. Um, so I look at intellectual property protection as an opportunity for closer relations because it will help them achieve their long-term objectives. Uh, second, uh, we can work together on the, the proposed bilateral investment treaty, known as the BIT. A BIT will have benefits across many industries, including the technology industry. Uh, BIT negotiations can provide an opportunity for both our nations to successfully operate in each other's markets to a great, much greater depth. Um, combined with the rule of law, a bit will encourage mutual investment in innovative industries. Um, the other advantage of a bit negotiation, aside from the substance, is it will be much less contentious than other trade negotiations, and it thus can help build the overall relationship. As Mr. Greenberg said uh, in his opening, uh, one gets more done in a, in a positive environment than a negative one, and a bit will help build that positive environment because it doesn't stir up some of the same passions as tariff negotiations do. Third, we can work together in encouraging market access and deployment of the highest quality, most competitive technologies worldwide. This benefits consumers of technology because they get better products. It benefits producers, including those in China, by helping them access a global market. And it benefits society as a whole by encouraging continuing innovation 
rather than locking in specific older technologies. To give you two examples of how that might be done, first, China and the U.S. can work with other nations to ensure that international standards are adopted through fair and open competition rather than proprietary standards. Second, we can work with China on their accession to the WTO Government Procurement Accord. This will enhance both countries' abilities to access each other's markets. And this is very important for the technology industry because government is such a large procurer of technology. So I think innovation is a critical area for this mutual understanding and joint efforts to work together. And with that, I'll turn it back over to John. Ed, thank you. Finally, let me turn to Darren, uh, Darren McGee. Uh, and as, as I mentioned, um, Amory Lovins couldn't be with us today, but taken such an important role in shaping our discussions about energy and the environment. Would you say a few words, Darren? Sure. Um, Amory does send his regrets. Uh, I'm uh, happy to play his stunt double at times, but um, uh, can uh, uh, we, we come at this from slightly different perspectives. I've worked with Amory for uh, several years on China-related issues, and I'm uh, engaged with the commission here uh, as, as a China advisor to um, Rocky Mountain Institute, uh, which Amory co-founded, um, and as a professor of Asian Environmental Studies. Um, at uh, Howard William Smith in New York, um, and as a, sort of a long-term student of energy and environment and water uh, issues in, in, in China. Um, I've been asked today to, to um, represent Dr. Levin speak briefly about areas uh, where uh, we see is most promising um, and important for U.S.-China collaboration on energy environment. Um, and uh, so I'll, I'll, I'll move straight to that. First of all, I mean, it's, it's most of us are probably familiar with these notions of, um, you know, a new coal plant being constructed weekly or daily or every three days in China. Um, the the uh, possibility that uh, a dozen or so three gorges um, dams in terms of electrical uh, hydropower capacity will be built in the next couple of decades in China. These are sort of testaments to the uh, energy demands uh, that, that the Chinese um, economic machine and, and, and social uh, system uh, are going to place uh, on, on China's environment and on the world in the next um, decades. And so with, with the magnitude and importance of, of that in mind, of, of China and the U.S. as uh, such consumers of energy um, and having uh, the potential for large effects, um, both positive and negative, on energy and environment issues in the future, um, we have recommended a task force that would address, uh, among others, the following key topics. I'm sort of cherry-picking cherry here. Uh, one, work to dramatically improve the efficiency and cleanliness of existing thermal power generation, including carbon sequestration technologies. Um, given that coal is such an abundant resource in both countries uh, and will likely remain an important part of both countries' uh, energy profiles uh, for the uh, near to medium term. Um, Incremental change in those technologies, though, is only sort of the tip of the iceberg in, what ter in terms of what these two countries um, uh, need. Um, and so with that in mind, uh, this, we envision a task force that would work uh, to develop, refine, and promote game-changing uh, technologies uh, in alternative energy production and in-use efficiency and how we use um, energy. Uh, one especially promising sector that we see um, as an example um, is distributed renewables, uh, an area where China is already a leader uh, in the world, where uh, its growth has been several times as fast as nuclear power, uh, where the installed capacity in China is now several times that of nuclear uh, in China, and which has been uh, uniquely um, uh, able to attract private capital in ways that uh, large centralized sources have not been. Um, so we, we see that uh, reworking the ways we harness and utilize energy is sort of vital to sustaining economic development, continued improvements in human livelihoods and employment opportunities in both countries, and progress toward reducing carbon emissions um, uh, for which both countries and indeed the world uh, hunger. Um, the third, the ability of the United States and, and China to harness the foresight of our leaders, uh, the creativity of our people, and the power of markets uh, to weed out inefficient technologies and practices um, will directly benefit, in our opinion, the uh, efforts to reduce humans' contributions to climate change. So even allowing for uncertainty in the science behind climate change, I, I think that still exists, or at least um, at least in Washington, D.C. it does. Um, 
the, uh, the, the leaders of both countries have, have a, an opportunity, or maybe even a mandate, Tianming, um, to ensure that current economic development practices, the way we, we do those, um, are restorative to our environment, to our planet, rather than degenerative, um, and that um, we, we leave to our children and grandchildren a better, better world than we started with. Um, and finally, and related very closely to energy, although not obvious um, for, for, for most of us, I think, um, we recognize the importance of reliable, safe, and sufficient uh, freshwater resources in both countries uh, for maintaining social harmony and well-being, uh, agricultural productivity, uh, obviously, um, ecological integrity, and human health in China and the U.S. and indeed around the world. Um, yet the processes of securing, transporting, and treating water uh, for both drinking and after discharging it um, uh, equally relevant in the western United States and increasingly in the eastern United States as in China um, all require energy and uh, so if increasing in use efficiency in how we use water um, will sort of provide double gains um, in, uh, in terms of energy efficiency as well. So to summarize as many others on this uh, commission uh, have already said, we, we recognize significant challenges that confront the leaders and the peoples of these two countries. We recognize that there will be areas where our interests uh, diverge, but we um, also recognize um, uh, a lot of opportunities presented by those challenges in terms of environment and energy. Um, and we envision a task force that embraces those, chal those challenges as an opportunity to think and, more importantly, to act uh, creativity, creatively and boldly um, with the ingenuity for which these two countries have um, have been known in the past. Um, so, thank you. Thanks, Darren. Uh, Senator Cohen? Yeah, just uh, quickly, we've gone in the use of metaphors uh, from hockey uh, to baseball to space camp, uh, all in a very short period of time. But I, I want to say a couple of words about um, the evolution of uh, smart power. Uh, at the Pentagon, we always talk about hard power. Uh, diplomats tend to talk about soft power. Uh, and uh, what CSIS has come up with uh, from Joe Nye and Rich Armitage is smart power. Uh, there are some who would uh, look at this report and say, well, it's not tough enough. And what I really wanted to say, just a couple of words about Hank Greenberg, uh, about being tough enough. Uh, this uh, man uh, fought during World War II in some of the fiercest battles that we had. He not only fought as a 17-year-old, but then uh, joined up again to fight in Korea uh, in a very uh, tough situation. He has been uh, a warrior all of his life, uh, both uh, wearing a uniform, but uh, most especially in business. There was a fight that he's ever walked away from. And so uh, when uh, he uh, comes to this table and says, we need to uh, take our power, uh, and apply it intelligently and smartly, uh, then I think all of us have to listen to why someone who has been so combative during his entire life in a positive way to achieve the kind of results he has um, when he comes to um, talking about our relations with a, a rising power. I think it's important that all of us uh, listen to him. Uh, thank you very much, boss. Let me uh, just wrap up to say then I'm going to turn to you for questions. Uh, I've, I'm the person that's the least experience with China. I've only started going to China in the last eight years. Um, and because I was previously in government, I mean, the Chinese are, accord me a, a, a respect which I don't deserve, but I really enjoy. I mean, and, um, but I've noticed uh, something during these last eight years which is really remarkable. That in all of my conversations in China, I'm struck by the pragmatism and the strategic framework that I hear among Chinese leaders. At the same time, I've been amazed at how tactical and ideological we've become. And if you think about that, that's not a winning formula for us. So the purpose here with this project was to try to get us back to a strategic and pragmatic focus for America. Thank you all for coming. Now let's open up the floor for questions that you may have of our panelists here. Let me start right down here, sir. Yeah, can we get a microphone? Do we have? Well, we do have wandering mics. Yep, right there, second row. Hi, I'm. It's working. That's fine. Okay. 
I'm Sean Tannen. I'm a correspondent with the AFP News Agency. It's just following up a bit on what uh, Secretary Cohen and Dr. Hamre said just uh, just right now. Um, first of all, as you know, Secretary Clinton went uh, recently to China. Do you believe that the new administration is starting to take more, as you say, a tactical approach rather than ideological approach toward China? Uh, do you see that as the direction for the current administration? And also, just to follow up a bit on when you talk about uh, not being tough enough or, or the accusations potentially not being tough enough. Uh, regarding human rights issues, uh, if we were to take a more soft uh, or a more quiet approach, uh, is there a danger that the U.S. could be seen to be acquiescing some abuses by the Chinese authorities? Okay, do you want to start? Yeah, uh, let me take the last part of the question first. You don't make any progress by berating a country publicly. Uh, you make far more progress if you talk about differences quietly. Diplomacy that is in the press day to day is not the way to proceed. I think that, uh, that Secretary um, Clinton's trip, uh, I think, was pretty good. I think she, I think she addressed the issues uh, quietly, um, and I think that uh, she made publicly known that China is a priority. Uh, relationship to the United States, as it should be, and uh, and so I think it's off to a good start. Uh, uh, there was a report that came out subsequently um, uh, about China that was ill-timed, and I think it was unwise uh, just following up on her trip to have that report from the State Department. Um, but I do think that uh, uh, that. Uh, the administration, I think, must recognize the importance of China um, as a world, as a coming world power, and for us not to uh, work closely together would be to our detriment. Charles, just just briefly to follow up, uh, the I mean, the, it's it's absolutely critical, and I think the administration gets it that we have a strategic framework in the, for for dealing with China. And I think that Secretary Clinton's trip really demonstrated the understanding there. The challenges will be as we start getting into the, the thick of other ur more urgent matters is how we are able to maintain that strategic distance and vision with respect to China. And that's going to be the real, ch the real challenge for the administration. With respect to human rights, um, I, I, if you actually looked at what Secretary Clinton did, and one of the most important things she did was she sat and met with uh, a, a group of, of human rights leaders within China and had a genuine discussion about the direction of things. That's human rights work. Being a village preacher and standing up and demanding certain things isn't the way to make progress in China. And I think with respect to this administration, they understand it. Uh, clearly human rights is, is at the top of their agenda, but actually moving the human rights agenda in a productive and positive way doesn't require that you stand up and, and berate, as, as Mr. Greenberg said. I also point out that all, members of Congress are going to be free to uh, say whatever they want on, uh, on the uh, floor of the House or the Senate, and this issue isn't going to be muffled, uh, certainly, by them. But what is important is that you have the executive branch from the President to the Secretary of State. When they go to visit countries or those countries come to visit here, you take up those issues um, uh, quietly behind the doors and you press the issues. Uh, it's, again, a matter of... Uh, Human Relations 101. It doesn't matter you're talking about China, Russia, India, name the country. If you stand on a podium and pound the podium and, and uh, say these are the things you must do, uh, you're likely to get just the opposite result. So um, human rights is fundamental to us. I think that we raise the issue by being an example of where human rights flourish in this country, to continue to hold up the lamp of liberty, and that other countries uh, for many, many years have always looked to us as uh, holding uh, up that lamp and uh, being a, an ideal for them to follow. And then the rest of it you carry on at the executive level as, um, as respectfully and uh, as intensely as, as you can, but uh, not by pounding it uh, on a public forum. I think you also have to recognize that um, China is a country of a billion, 300 million people. Uh, we're a country of about 300 million people. Social stability <laughs> is critical to China and to the world. Um, and so you've got to recognize the differences and how you deal with these differences. It's much more difficult to deal with a billion, 300 million people than it is with 300 million people. And so if you look at the progress that has been made from the time I first went to China to 
but now it's enormous. And we don't seem to give people, uh, countries, credit sometimes for the progress that has been made. Uh, we're too busy thinking about what they should do in the future. And uh, so I think that you have to put it in perspective. You also have to recognize different cultures of a country, different history, uh, totally different than our own. Every country has its own. And you can't just dictate what they should be based upon what you are. I'm Jorge Navarro from the Embassy of Mexico. I have a question about this uh, strategy, comprehensive strategy. United States has a grand strategy, China has a grand strategy, but at the time when they have certain hot spots like uh, Taiwan and North Korea, and when China is approaching this Asian plus three and is now recognizing United States involvement in that area, United States dealing with Japan, how you put all this uh, smart power in this uh, strategy of this grand strategy from China toward Asia and grand strategy to United States, obviously, toward Asia. Thank you. What you do is uh, you engage the Chinese and persuade them that it's not in their interest to try and exclude the United States. Uh, to the extent that they exclude the United States, then uh, it's a very um, um, adverse uh, relationship they're creating. That we are an Asia-Pacific power, uh, as well as China. Uh, I have traveled on many occasions to visit with the Chinese military and point out uh, that uh, the Chinese government, the Chinese people, have been the biggest beneficiary uh, of our presence throughout the Asia-Pacific region because we have created stability. And when you create stability, you invite uh, economic investment. Uh, we like to say that uh, capital is a coward. Uh, it takes flight whenever there's instability. And so we have created great stability throughout the Asia-Pacific region for the last um, 50, 60 years and the Chinese have been the, the biggest beneficiaries of that. So to try and exclude the U.S. Uh, means that you're going to try to marginalize us. It creates um, at least suspicions, apprehensions, and perhaps some contention. Uh, that will not bode well for the region or for the Chinese. So uh, I think it's uh, meeting with them, persuading them that we're really trying to work together. Uh, that's why we're having this strategic relationship. That's why we're talking about having a strategic framework in which we're not seeking a zero-sum game, but that we're identifying issues uh, that we can really cooperate on to the betterment, betterment uh, of uh, the human uh, uh, race as such. Global good is what we're seeking to achieve. And uh, we can only do that if we're working together and not being outside of a particular um, group or alliance. Um, you're, you're kind to suggest that the United States has a grand strategy in Asia. I'm not sure that we do. Um, uh, I, and I think that's really one of the, the, the crucial issues here. Is, as, as Dr. Hamry said, the, 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 we've really been in reactive mode, very tactical mode, for much of the last 10 years. And if you look back at U.S. strategy with respect to China, it's, it dates from, a, from conversations that, that, uh, that President Nixon and, and uh, Secretary Kissinger had which is we need to engage China to draw them into the, into the, the U.S.-led order, and, uh, and that will reduce tensions, and, and that will provide a vehicle for, um, for, um, for, for the global good. Well, times have changed since 1972. Things have come a long way. And the notion of, of the United States, uh, um, um, the, the Washington consensus, if you will, um, as being the only way forward is, is, is really under, under some challenging times, particularly given what's happened over the last, uh, last year or so. So I, I think the issue is, is we need to stop being in such a reactive mode and step back and have a much more strategic, and we, we need to come up with a grand strategy, not just for Asia, but with respect to the, to the, the world as a whole. And, and in our view, that has to be smart, uh, for lack of a better word. You know, there was a time not many years ago when the policy seemed to be, at least the perception was, uh, that you had to contain China uh, rather than engage China. Now, the, it, it's very foolish to believe that the United States or any country can have a policy of containing China. First of all, it wouldn't work. And second, 
It just leads to conflict. Uh, engaging China is the right strategy, and I believe that that's what we're trying to do now. Uh, if you'll indulge me just to say uh, a little advertisement, we, we just issued a report about a week ago that where we surveyed 350 uh, foreign policy experts uh, in throughout Asia, nine different countries, and it addresses this question about the evolving regional architecture and attitudes in Asia. Um, overwhelmingly, uh, and this includes China, people welcome America's presence as an Asian power. Uh, the, the notion that we are being excluded and marginalized in theaters is just not borne out by the data. And it's on our website. I'd encourage you to look at it. It's a very interesting survey. Okay, we've got time just for basically what, yes, sir, right down here in the third row? Yeah, we'll bring you a microphone. Hi there. Uh, thank you so much for gathering today. Uh, my name is Mark Whaling, and I work for the Futures Group International, primarily in public health work. Um, but I'll be a Henry Luce scholar the coming year in either China or Taiwan. And I wondered if you could actually speak to U.S. diplomacy going forward related, related to the Taiwan issue. Well, the Chinese have always had difficulty uh, with uh, Taiwan in terms of our relationship with Taiwan. Uh, as you know, we have uh, always, uh, well, since Richard Nixon and, uh, and Dr. Kissinger um, articulated the One China policy, uh, we've also had the Taiwan uh, Relations Act. And the Chinese officials have always found that to be uh, a rather difficult concept for them to grasp. And what we have said is that uh, we um, still support the One uh, China uh, concept and that we uh, hope that a unification will take place. If it takes place, it must do so peacefully. And we have therefore provided uh, Taiwan with uh, defensive equipment uh, over the years in order to uh, assure as best we can that uh, that uh, ultimate goal will, uh, will arrive. Uh, I must say that what we are seeing take place is a, a rather significant integration between Taiwan and the mainland. That the economic um, activity is, uh, is quite substantial. We have uh, several million, I think, uh, Taiwanese now working um, on the mainland in, uh, in Shanghai in particular. Uh, the integration seems to be uh, taking place um, uh, uh, in a very short period of time. I think the, uh, the question, the worry that the Chinese have had uh, with uh, Shen Shui Bian uh, the last couple of years has uh, pretty much dissipated. I think the Taiwanese, Taiwanese political uh, situation uh, looks forward to having a uh, a much uh, more constructive relationship and not an adverse one with, uh, with uh, the mainland. And that integration is taking place, as we had hoped, on a peaceful basis and not through uh, any kind of military action. We still maintain uh, that we will uh, provide Taiwan with the necessary defensive equipment to assure that the integration, when it finally comes, comes through peaceful means. Could I just uh, also build on this to say, I, I, uh, President Hu Jintao, back on the 31st of December, gave a very important speech. You may want to track it down and take a look at it. He outlined on the anniversary, the 30th anniversary, of an equally pivotal speech that had been given uh, by Deng Xiaoping uh, about a potential new direction in cross-straits relations. And he outlined six new principles that could guide the evolving relationship between Taiwan and Beijing. You need to take a look at it. It is a new era, potentially a new era. Now, nobody should be terribly naive about where it could go. Uh, you know, there are lots of complexities. But this outlines, this speech that the President who gave outlines a path that, that talks about uh, a very profound new pattern of recognition, mutual respect between Taiwan and Beijing. Uh, the acid test, of course, is going to be the question of will we find a formula for Taiwan's uh, presence at the World Health Assembly. Um, the, the, one of the six principles is a, an acknowledgment that there could be a legitimate role for Taiwan in international, uh, in international structures, but not in a way that gives precedence to an independence agenda. I mean, that's basically the foundation of the, uh, 
statement. And of course, they have to work this out on the World Health Assembly. I think that's going to be the key question. But boy, the indicators are positive. So I think we should look forward to this as being a, a potentially a very important year that could shape a much more positive direction for cross-straits relations. Colleagues, we promised we were only going to hold you here, especially my, my colleagues on this side, only uh, until 11.30. There probably is a chance to intercept one or two for questions on the way out. Thank you all for coming. We're delighted that you were with us. The report will be available shortly. <laughs>